Uh, well, hey, good morning, New Life Fellowship. It is so good to be with you here this morning. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I just have the privilege of bringing you God's word today. Well, uh, today we're going to be studying Matthew chapter 20, and we've actually been in this series called Short Stories by Jesus. And today we'll preach on Matthew 20. Uh, next week I'll be preaching from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and next week will be uh, somewhat within our series, but it's not particularly a parable, but it's actually an illustration that Jesus gave us. And then the following week after that, we're going to be starting a brand new series in the book of Daniel called Faithful in the Faithless. And I'm really excited about this series because this series is all about actually living faithfully in a faithless culture and generation. And how do we actually do that? And most times as Christians, we either run away from culture or we actually get sucked into it. And so the hope of this sermon series is to actually teach you how to be faithful in the faithless, not running away from it, not being absorbed by it, but rather being in it and being able to live for Christ, uh, with Christ, uh, in a faithless generation. And so please, if you're interested in that, uh, please invite your friends, your family members who might be interested in that as we walk through the sermon series in Daniel. Also, on that day we begin the Daniel series, we'll also be starting our drive-in service. And if you feel comfortable attending, we please, we, we invite you, we welcome you, we encourage you to come out. Uh, but for those of you who are still uncomfortable coming out to physically worship in your cars, um, just know that the online worship will always be there uh, and it will be good and, and better just as ever. So. Uh, don't worry about that. Just know that we will always have online worship for you. Uh, well, let's dive into our passage for today. Again, we're looking at Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses 1 to 16, uh, a very famous parable about a master who goes out and hires uh, workers for his vineyard. Let me go ahead and read this for us. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you could respond with thanks be to God. And then I'll go ahead and pray for us, and then I'll seat you at the end of this. So if at this time you're able, would you rise as we read God's word uh, together? Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses 1 to 16. Uh, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These worked last only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. A Father, a very intriguing story, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the scriptures for us today. Would you open up our hearts so that we can hear? 
God, we pray that we would understand in a deeper way your grace and your mercy for us today. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, you can be seated right there at home. Well, uh, you know, what I find very interesting, uh, especially about married couples such as myself, is that the thing that we actually fell in love with our spouses uh, for, like the qualities we found very interesting and awesome in them, are actually the qualities, now that we're married, that we actually find quite annoying at times. Uh, and of course, I kind of joke, but at the same time, this is sort of truthful, right? Let me give you an example. Uh, maybe you fell in love with your spouse because they were mysterious and you love the mystery about them. But then now that you're married, you realize that this mystery is actually just a lack of communication. And that actually frustrates you quite a bit now that you're married. Or maybe for others of you, uh, you started dating and, and you loved how your sp spouse was sp uh, sp spontaneous. They would just kind of whisk you off and do all sorts of things. But now that you're married, you realize that that spontaneity was actually a lack of organization. Or maybe uh, some of you fell in love uh, with, with someone because they had conviction. But now that you're married, you realize that conviction is just stubbornness. Or maybe you loved how playful they were uh, and are uh, while you're dating. But now that you're married, you realize that that playfulness extends to all sorts of people. And sometimes it makes you uncomfortable. All this to say there are qualities we can love about people, uh, but then simultaneously actually hate about them. Sort of strange. Now, the reason why I'm talking about this is because I would actually say the same is true of our relationship with God. So I think many of us, in, uh, especially if you're Christian here today, many of you would actually say to me, hey, you know what, the reason why I fell in love with Jesus Christ was because of his grace. Jesus' grace, the, his, his ability to shower us with love, even though we were undeserving of it, is the reason why I love Jesus. And yet what I'm here to tell you today is that perhaps, maybe for some of you, the, the, the quality of grace that you fell in love with Jesus is actually also the very quality that you actually don't like about Jesus. And so in order to explain this a little bit more, let's actually dive into our passage for today. So for today, we have three points as we normally do. Uh, the first point is called the downside of grace. And so if you're taking notes, you can write that down. Uh, the second point we have is the perception of grace. And then our third and final point is the embodiment of grace. Uh, so the downside, the perception, and then the embodiment of grace. Uh, again, if you're taking notes, you can write those three things down. But let's go ahead and dive into our first point here. Uh, you know, the parable's central point, in my opinion, seems to be pretty clear. Uh, it, it's actually seen and it shows up many, many times throughout the story. If you actually look at the story, it's sandwiched, meaning that it starts with this and it ends with it, with these two statements. And they're the same equivalent statement. Uh, look with me at verse uh, 30 of actually chapter 19. If you just take one step back before our passage, in verse uh, 30 of chapter 19, Jesus begins the parable actually with this statement. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now skip down to verse 16 of chapter 20. Look how Jesus ends the parable. So the last will be first and the first last. And so he begins the parable by saying the first is last, last first, and then he ends it by saying those things as well. Uh, in addition, he actually uh, sort of you know, splatters these words all throughout the parable itself. Uh, if you look at verse 8, for example, it says this, Call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. Right? Uh, look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this, Now when, they, uh, when those hired first came, they thought, oh, sorry, uh, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Uh, go ahead and look at verse 12. Saying, these 
last, right, that, that's the first worker saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us. Uh, look at verse 14. Uh, Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. And then finally, again, in verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. And so Jesus' point here seems pretty clear. The first will be last and the last will be first. And so what does Jesus mean by this statement? Because the statement itself seems a bit disorienting. And so that takes us directly into the actual story for today. Uh, because I think the parable itself sort of answers this question of what does Jesus mean by this? See, the story actually follows the master of this house, right? This master of the house decides one day to wake up early in the morning and to go out and hire workers for his vineyard. So he goes out, he finds these workers, and he employs them. And he says, look, basically, I'll pay you a denarius for your day's wage. And so these workers are excited. They're, they're glad to have found work. And back in those days, uh, just like today, it's a sheer grace. It's an act of grace to find work like that because in those ancient days, it was difficult to find work. In addition, if you notice, the master of the house doesn't hire them for any qualities that they have. He doesn't say, well, let me look at your resume. You're able-bodied. You have all these skills and talents. He simply elects them. He chooses them. And so therefore, having grace upon these first workers. Now, what the master does next is quite peculiar. Uh, this never really happened in the ancient world, but he actually went out again. In fact, he didn't just go out one more time. He went out four additional times. He went out at the third hour, at the sixth hour, at the ninth hour, and then finally at the eleventh hour. He goes out four additional times, and he finds additional workers. And scholars are kind of perplexed by why he does this, but most that I read actually say the reason why he does this is because he's a gracious master, and he realizes that there are people who can't work, people who haven't found work, and so he wants to employ them in order to actually pay them. And so he goes out again and again and again, even one hour before the day ends, he actually finds more workers to actually employ them and to pay them. And what's really interesting, at the very end of this parable, there's this twist, right? There's this immense twist where, at the end of the parable, he pays not only the first workers a denarius, but he pays the last workers a denarius as well. And what I find really, really interesting about this story is that the people that this master actually hires are not hardworking, able-bodied men. In fact, the, the, the last four times he goes out, he actually hires people who are quite lazy. Uh, look, look at verse 3 with me, right? If you look at verse 3, this is what the passage says. It says this, And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. I want you to actually underline that word, idle. Uh, if you look at verse 6 again, uh, six with me, and about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? I want you to underline that word idle. This word idle in the Greek, if you actually break it apart, it actually means, more often than not, it actually means lazy. Why are you standing here lazy? Why are you standing here living a lifestyle of laziness, actually? That's what this word actually means. And so in other words, this master doesn't go out and hire people who are able and capable. He actually hires people who are quite lazy. In fact, the reason why they probably weren't able to find work at the beginning of the day is because they didn't wake up early in time. And yet the master shows them grace and compassion. At the end of the story, these lazy, no good workers who basically only worked an hour get paid a denarius and the hard working first workers of the day who got up early in the morning get a denarius as well. 
And this blows their minds away. The first workers are just absolutely grumbling and in anger and they complain against the manager or the master of the house and they, they basically say, like, what, what's going on here? Why are you doing this to us? So what is Jesus trying to do in this story? What is he trying to do in this story? And here's what I think Jesus is trying to do. And, and this is me just being very serious here. I actually think Jesus is trying to mess with you and me. I think he's trying to mess with us a little bit by telling us this story. And what Jesus is asking us and the way he's messing with us is he's asking us this question. Do you really love my grace? Do you really love my grace? See, in the Old Testament, Jesus says this, right? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And that aspect of me, do you actually love that about me? Or is this something that you actually find off-putting? Because here's the thing, my guess is that you don't actually really love Jesus for his grace. See, do you love Jesus' grace when he showers other lazier people with job promotions while you are stuck unemployed? Do you love Jesus' grace when he lavishes his grace on others by providing them child after child while you struggle to conceive? Do you love Jesus' grace when he smothers people with his grace by endowing other women with beauty while you fight to find the things beautiful about yourself? Do you love Jesus' grace when he gives others more and you less? Do you love Jesus' grace when he blesses even perhaps the people that you hate? Because here's the thing, Jesus' graciousness is so big, his grace is so amazing that he's not going to just give you grace, he's going to give everybody grace in this world. And my question to you is, are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? In fact, are you okay when God actually gives more grace sometimes to others? And in fact, this is what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 15 with me, right? Look what he says in verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you, listen to this, or do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my grace? Do you hate my grace? You know, I want you to actually underline that word begrudge because that word is an important, important word for this sermon and we're actually going to come back to it again and again. That word begrudge is actually two words in the Greek. Uh, the first part of that word is actually ophthalmos. Ophthalmos, okay? Uh, the second part of this word is paneros. Okay, ophthalmos, which is where we get the word ophthalmologist, right? It actually means eye. It means the eye. Paneros means evil. And so what Jesus is actually saying here is, look, do you look at my generosity? Do you look at my grace with an evil eye? Do you look at it with an evil eye? Do you think that this thing is actually evil? Do you look upon my generosity with evil as being evil to you? You know what I think is really interesting is people think the book of Jonah is all about God's calling upon your life. That if you run away from God's calling, he's going to send the big fish to swallow you up and send you right back to his calling. But that's actually not the main point of the book. That might be an aspect of the book, but that's not the main point of the book. The main point of the book, in actuality, is that God's grace is so big that it's actually going to offend you sometimes. God's grace is so big that it's actually going to offend you at times. You see, here's what the book of Jonah is all about. If you don't know, Jonah is an Israelite prophet, but the Ninevites are actually the enemies of the Israelites. And right before the book of Jonah actually happens, the Ninevites actually commit genocide against the northern tribes of Israel. And in fact, completely wipe them out. 
They completely wipe out all the northern tribes of Israel. And Jonah sees this happening, and he hates the Ninevites. And he's waiting for the day that God will punish them with his wrath. And yet when God comes to Jonah and says, no, 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 I'm not going to punish them. I actually want you, Jonah, to go preach the gospel to them so that I can forgive them and then so that I can bless your enemies. And Jonah's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And in fact, Jonah runs away and we know the rest of the story. And in fact, at the very end of the story, people think it ends with Jonah preaching the gospel, everyone in Nineveh is saved, but that's not how the book of Jonah ends. The book of Jonah ends with Jonah being angry and sad to the point where he actually wants to take his own life. That's how sad and bitter he is. Because he knows how gracious God is. And he doesn't like the grace of God. He thinks the grace of God is evil. And in fact, this is what Jonah actually says. This is what's actually said in the book of Jonah. You don't have to turn there with me, but in the book of Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, It displeased Jonah exceedingly. The it being God's grace. Uh, It, God's grace, displeased Jonah exceedingly. In fact, if you break apart the Hebrew literally, do you know what the Hebrew literally says? It says this, it being the grace of God was evil to Jonah with great evil. God's grace was so evil to Jonah with great evil. Why? Because the grace of God was so big, was so amazing that it even showered Jonah's very enemies. You and I are so sinful that we would look at the grace of God with great evil. We would look at the grace of God with great evil. Uh, you know, um, just to be very vulnerable and transparent with you guys, uh, you know, and I actually kind of, while I was typing out this story, I was really thinking about whether or not I should share this, but because just sharing this story makes me feel so icky and yucky inside because I just feel so shameful that I even did this or I felt this way. Um, but. At my last church, when I first started doing college ministry, the college ministry that I inherited was quite small. There was about 15 students or so. And over the next year, even maybe two years, that college ministry grew maybe two or three people. Uh, So we went from about 15 to maybe 18. Um, And it was a whopping huge growth of three people. Meanwhile, at the same time, one of my uh, good friends, he actually started a college ministry himself. He started as a college pastor. And his college ministry began at the same size, about 15 people or so. But over the course of the year, in two years, his college ministry actually doubled in size. It went from 15 to 30, and then ultimately to about 45 people or so. And I remember thinking, like, what did I do wrong? What did he do well? And I kid you not, this is what I did. I went online, I looked at his sermons, and I tried doing research on him to see what it is that he did well that I didn't do. And what I came to the conclusion of is this, and I feel sick just telling you this, But I concluded that I'm a better preacher than him. I'm a better leader. Why isn't my ministry growing? Why is God blessing this guy and not blessing me? Why is God giving grace to him but not to me? And in fact, in that moment, I saw God's grace as being evil. I mean, people were being saved in that ministry. People were coming to know the love of Christ. People were growing in discipleship. He was actually doing a great job. God was using him. God was blessing him. There was grace being poured upon that ministry. And I begrudged it. I begrudged it. Why? Because because I thought I was better. Again, I say this with a tremendous amount of shame and guilt in me. Do you look at the grace Jesus has given to other people with great evil and be honest with yourself? This is why I'm being transparent right now because I want you to be transparent with yourself. Don't hide it because that's what we'll do. Name your sin. Tell God your sin. In fact, let me tell you another story. You know, 
when my wife and I first got married, you know, we didn't have an easy time having kids. Although now we have two beautiful kids, uh, both Josiah and Ezekiel, um, two wonderful boys uh, who sometimes give us a little bit too much trouble, but nonetheless, we still love them. Um, but, but at first, uh, my wife and I, or my wife had two miscarriages. Uh, and in fact, it was very difficult for us to conceive. And I remember during that time, especially during our second miscarriage and when we were trying um, to get pregnant again, I remember really praying this to God and saying, God, like, why are you blessing all these other people around us? Because time and time again, we saw other people similar in age to us having kids and God blessing and pouring out his blessings upon them. And I really, I, 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 again, I feel sick even telling you this, but this was my thought. I, I thought, man, like, God, I, I serve you. Like, I'm not doing something selfish with my life. Like, I don't care about money. I don't care about riches. Like, I just want to serve you, but man, why don't you give to me? But then these other people who like barely go to church, who don't really, like you're blessing them? You're giving them grace? And honestly, like I, I really felt that way. I felt like God was doing me a great injustice because of what he was doing for others. And But do you see how I looked at the grace of God with evil eyes? I begrudged his grace. And again, my question to you is to be honest with yourself. Do you begrudge the grace of God? Do you look at the grace of God with evil eyes? This leads us to our second point, the perception of grace, the perception of grace. Right, as I mentioned, this word begrudge is actually two words, ophthalmos and poneros, right, which means evil eye. And Jesus uses this specific phrase to actually uh, relate us back to a previous teaching he gave back in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 to 23. And look what it says here. This is what Jesus says. You can actually turn there with me. We might spend some time here. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, ophthalmos poneros, right? So I want you to underline that. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And you see what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, if your eye is healthy, your whole soul will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole soul will be filled with darkness. It's sort of like my son's air filter. He has a little air filter in his room that pumps out clean air. If the filter in his air filter is bad, well, guess what? The whole room is going to be filled with dirty air. But if the filter in his air filter is clean, then his whole room will be filled with clean air. And you see, for many of you, the reason why your soul is so filled with darkness is so filled with sorrow in your life is because oftentimes it's not the circumstance that's getting to you. It's actually the eye, the perception that you have over your life, over the circumstances that God has given to you. And Jesus is saying, look, if you want joy, if you want light, if you want your soul to be healthy, it begins with your eye. It begins on what you perceive. See, for us, we always blame our circumstances. We always blame God for why we're sour or angry or bitter and we say things like this you know what if only I was married then I'd be filled with joy you know if only I was making as much money as they are then then I'd be filled with praise if only you know I had a house like theirs if only I had kids like theirs if only I got a lucky break like them if only I was as charming as them if only I was as smart as them if only if only if only But Jesus is saying, look, it's not about the circumstance. It's about how you perceive it with your eyes. 
You know, I remember uh, a while ago when I was first getting into ministry uh, during seminary, I, I ended up getting a part-time job at this church. Um, and I remember when they offered me the job, I, I was so shocked and amazed because they were going to pay me $1,500 a month to basically do the things that I wanted to do for free. I was actually going to probably do those things for free anyhow. And yet they were like, we want to we hire you. And so they started paying me $1,500 a month. Because of that, I was ecstatic. I was thrilled. I mean, I was literally jumping up and down for joy because I was so happy to be getting paid $1,500 for something I'd actually do for free. Uh, well, time passes and I end up graduating seminary and the same church was told me, hey, we want to hire you full time now. You've been doing a good job. And so, you know, I, I was very blessed and very thankful and they presented me with a new salary and they said, we're going to pay you $3,500 now. And I looked at that, I was like, holy moly, like, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, wow, like, this is amazing. Like, I, again, I would do all these things for free, but you're going to pay me $3,500 to do something that I really, really enjoy? Man, praise God, hallelujah. But then something happened. Everything turned upside down. I remember one day uh, talking to one of my coworkers, and I actually found out how much they made as well. And my, my other co-pastor, the coworker that I had, uh, he did not have a seminary, seminary degree like I did. Uh, he had very little ministry experience like I did. Uh, and yet, he was getting paid the same amount as me. And I kid you not, I got angry. <laughs> I was filled with sorrow. Same money, different perceptions, different perceivings of that same money. One brought me joy, one brought me sorrow. One brought me joy and praise, the other one brought me anger and disgust. See, I was so outraged because I thought, well, if he's getting paid that much, I should get paid more. If he's getting paid this much, what about me? Let me give you another example. A friend of mine, you know, he once asked me, he said this, let's just say you're a UX designer, Eric. He said, how much do you think you should make as a UX designer? Like, give me a number that would make you happy. And me knowing nothing about UX designing, I said, well, you know, I don't know, maybe $200,000. You know, I was just shooting for the stars. He's like, oh, he's like, okay, yeah, you think that's a good amount? And I said, yeah, I, I think so. He's like, is that enough for you and your family to live off of? I said, yeah. So would you be happy with that? I said, oh, yeah, heck yeah, I'd be happy with $200,000 a year. And then he asked me this. He said, okay, Eric, now what if you found out that they hired somebody at the same exact time as you, but they were paying that person $400,000 a year? Would you still be happy with your pay? And I answered him, no, I wouldn't be happy with that same pay. Why? Well, because the other guy's getting more than me. Aren't we doing the same job? Shouldn't I get... You see how perception... Perception leads to a different outcome. Look, it's not simply about how you perceive things, but it's also about how you actively blind yourself to certain things. It's also about how you actively blind yourself to, this, to certain things. You know, in the story, if you look at the first workers, the, the men who start early in the day are actually given as grace as well. And I mentioned this. The fact that they are actually given this job is a grace. The master of the house didn't have to choose them, and yet he chooses them. He didn't have to hire them, and yet he does. And in the same way, not only do our eyes for, uh, interpret the circumstances in our lives, but our eyes will actively blind itself to the grace and blessings that God has already given to us. Because you see, the first workers were blind to the grace that the master of the house had actually shown them. Look, we blind ourselves to God's grace all the time. Uh, you know, just today I was listening to a, a sermon by a pastor friend of mine, 
And he was actually talking about how amazing the word of God is and how just truly tremendous and how such a gift it is. And he was basically saying that we should read the word of God because it was written by God. I mean, think about that. Like we have a Bible, a book that was written by God himself. Should we not read this all the time? Right? For example, like my wife uh, really enjoys Michelle Obama. And when Michelle Obama came out with a book called Becoming, she immediately purchased it. Why? Because she really likes Michelle Obama and she wanted to read her book. She didn't know what the book was about. She knew nothing about it. But she knew that she really liked Michelle Obama and she wanted to read the book. And so when she wrote the book, she read it. And in the same way, we have a book written by God himself. This is written by God. It's crazy. Now, uh, this pastor friend of mine was in his sermon was detailing this. And then he proceeded to give an illustration. And this illustration revolved around a pastor friend of his and a roommate. And he said that this pastor friend of his had a roommate who was non-Christian. And this non-Christian friend one day asked him this question. He said, so you, you think the word of God, you think the Bible was written by God? And the pastor friend of his, you know, started getting ready, right? He was like, okay, here we go. We're going to have an apologetic showdown. I have to defend the word of God. I have to defend these truths. And he was getting ready to defend it. And so he replied, yes, I do believe it's written by God. And he did not expect this response. But the response that the non-Christian guy gave him was this. He said this, man, if I had a book and I believed it was written by God, I would read that bleeping thing every single day. Of course, he's a non-Christian, right? Which is why he cursed, but I'd read that thing every single day. This is a gift. This is a grace. And yet we forget about it all the time. We forget that we have the privilege of reading this thing every single day. We neglect it all the time. It's a grace. It's a gift. And yet we forget about it. Rather, we see all the things that God hasn't given to us. This leads us to our third and final point. The embodiment of grace. You know, the reason why these, work, these first workers ultimately begrudge the generosity of the master, the reason why they grumble, the reason why they are blind to the grace given to them is because of this simple thing called pride. It's really all about pride. Underneath the surface of the evil eye is this thing called pride. Look, I want you to notice this one little tiny small phrase that Jesus inserts, but I think is so telling of this story. It's in verse 12, right? Uh, look at what the first workers say about the last workers, right? Uh, saying, these last worked only one hour. And look at this. I want you to underline this part. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Do you see what these guys are saying? We're better than them. But you've made them equal to us. Like, I deserve this. You owe this to me. And, 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 and you see, this is what we do. The reason why we begrudge the grace of God, the reason why we think the grace of God is evil, is because you think, and I believe, that we are better than everyone else. You believe you deserve God's grace. Therefore, not being grace, it's earned. You believe there's something about you that's particularly better than others. You believe that God owes you. And look at how God would respond to us if we have this disposition of heart. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose 
with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? You see, in this story, the first are made last, and the last are made first. And this, my friends, is the gospel. The first and only Son of God, the first in priority, the first in importance, the first in honor, glory, status, might, the first in all of these things was made to be last. He was killed like somebody who was in last place. He was murdered like somebody who was the least of us. And yet the, 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 this person who was first that was made last did all of these things so that us who are last, who are least in importance, who don't deserve the love and grace of God, were now to be made first. This is the gospel, friends. Christ was made to be last so that we, as last place, could be made first. We who are humble are now exalted. We who are humble are now welcomed. And the way to have a healthy eye is to actually look and to gaze upon the cross. It's to turn your eyes and to fix it upon Christ and Him alone. Because the cross, first of all, humbles you. It reminds you that this is what your sin did. Your sin nailed God to a cross. And it humbles you and it reminds you that you are indeed the least of these. But at the same time, the cross exalts you. The cross lifts you up. The cross makes you the first. Why? Because the cross reminds you that Jesus Christ loves you, that he gives you grace, that he gives you his death, he gives you his resurrection, he gives you all of these things. He gives you his righteousness, even though you and I deserve none of it at all. See, the cross humbles us, but the cross also exalts us. The cross takes the least of us and makes us the first. And friends, this is the gospel and this is the truth that we gaze on constantly. Friends, you have to remind yourself daily that you don't deserve any of this stuff. All you and I deserve is the wrath and the penalty that we deserve for our sins. That's all we deserve. And yet every breath that we take, everything that we're able to receive, the, 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 the rain that falls upon our head, all of this is a grace and a gift from Jesus to us. And we have to remind ourselves of that truth daily, that we were the least and now we are first because the first was made last. Look friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a Christian but you're seeking and you're struggling, and maybe you've said this to yourself, I'm the last person that you should call Christian. I, I, I'm the last person that should be coming to church. Well, friends, I have really good news for you. You're actually the first. You're actually the first person that should call yourself a Christian, that should call yourself that this place is my home. Why? Because the gospel of grace is for you. The gospel of grace is for the least, is for those who are in last place. You are the prime candidate for being washed and loved by Christ. It's not because you did a bunch of good works. It's not because you have all of these lists of accomplishments behind you. Rather, it's because you come to recognize that you need a greater power outside of yourself. You need a love of God Himself to actually wash you clean of your sins. See, because this is what Jesus Christ has done. He's taken those who are humble, those who do not believe that they can be with God, and He takes them and He forgives them and He washes them clean. Not because of anything they've done, but because of what He's done on the cross for us. His blood on the cross washes you clean of your sins. His blood on the cross gives you a righteousness that is not your own so that you can stand before God one day and say, I am clean just like Jesus Christ is clean. I have the righteousness of Christ just as Christ has. Why? Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. 
And friends, if you want to receive Christ into your life today, I encourage you to click that button that says, I commit my life to Jesus Christ. It's going to appear right up in our chat room. And I want you to click that button if you want to commit your life to Christ. And then if you have extra courage, I want to encourage you to click that button again because what that will do is it will take you to a pastor who will pray for you, who will actually begin walking with you and who wants to walk with you and who wants to walk you through this journey called Christianity. And so friends, would you? I encourage you to begin taking that first steps today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, I thank you that Jesus Christ, who was the first, God, became last so that we who are last might become first. And Lord, I thank you, God, that his grace covers all, God. I pray that his common grace, God, his, the, the showers of rain, God, fall upon the righteous and the unrighteous. Lord, I thank you, God, and I celebrate the fact that, God, your grace comes upon all those who call upon your name. Lord, whether we've done good things or bad things, whether we've lived a mediocre life or a great life, Lord, your grace falls upon us all. And Lord, we thank you, God, that your grace falls upon us. And Lord, I pray specifically, God, for those of us in this place who struggle, God, who struggle because of comparison. We look at other people, God. We pray for their hearts, Lord, and we ask, God, that you would help them to remember and to see all the blessings in their lives. And Lord, we pray, God, for those in this place that do not know you, who are maybe thinking about taking those first steps towards you. And Lord, we ask and we pray, God, that you would open up their hearts and their eyes to see, God, that you are the true and living God. And that God waiting for them is life and life everlasting. Lord, we thank you for this time and for this place. We pray this all in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Would you now rise for the benediction? And if you don't know what a benediction is, it just means a good word. We want you to leave this place with a good, good word. And the word is this. Look, for all of us in this place, we are last. We are sinners. We are wretched. We are undeserving of anything. And yet, Jesus Christ, who is the first, became last, so that, friends, now we can become first. A very disorienting truth, but one that is absolutely true and one that should bring joy to your hearts. So hear now the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with us all, now and forevermore. Amen.